everyone and welcome to the Elephant TV. Uh, today I'll be chatting with uh, Darius Okola. Darius Okola is an economist, uh, uh, writer, writer in, in our dailies, uh, a curator at the Elephant and a social commentator among many other things. Uh, today we'll be discussing about the hustler narrative, trying to unpack this, this notion of the hustler narrative and what exactly it means uh, in light of the current political uh, climate, uh, even as we gear towards 2022. Uh, so just to introduce my guest, Karibu Darius. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe, for having me uh, on the Elephant TV to just be able to discuss this uh, critical conversation that is part of our core narratives right now in the country. Great. I mean, just to just, to just get us starting, I mean, I'm, I've been really intrigued about... Uh, I mean, the, the idea or, or the notion of a hustler. You know, that there, are many, there, are many, there are many people in both, both sides trying to, you know, trying to define it as a, as a, as a, with the Oxford Dictionary, which I think is, I mean, to my mind, it's, it's a bit uh, off, 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 the, off, off the field. But I don't know if you mm -hmm. just, if you just kindly uh, really articulate to us uh, where, where, this, where this hustler, hustler narrative started from, its origins and how it has, been, and how it has come to really capture uh, a faction of, of Kenya's public imagination. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, I think one of the bigger conversations that, uh, you know, around this narrative that we are supposed to have is the fact that, you know, the conversation or the, the question of who is a hustler is really depends on who you ask because are the street vendor, you know, the fruit vendors consider themselves hustlers. Um, the graduates who have not been able to learn themselves, uh, you know, a particular job, uh, consider themselves hustlers. Um, and across the spectrum, it's, it's a term that has always uh, been used to denote in many different contexts, as you've mentioned, there's some of them who will talk about it uh, in the context of, you know, a dictionary, which, I mean, to be fair, is you know, has a bit of truth in it, but in the wider spectrum of things, a hustler is simply anyone who considers themselves in a space where they have to use a bit of street smarts brain and sometimes brawn to be able to make a living or get themselves some resources here and there, especially in the urban spaces. But also we have to go back and realize that uh, the term hustler comes in at a, at a particular point um, in this country. So, in the wider conversation, you start from, let's say, in the 80s. You have a political economy that is, uh, you know, absorbing a lot of the graduates that are coming out of a schooling system. But then you get to the late 80s, early 90s, um, the full effects of the structural adjustment programs are here, and people need to be able to find a way to fend for themselves outside of the political economy, which by and large has become exhausted at this point. It cannot absorb as many uh, younger people you know, as it's uh, producing, you know, amount of a number of uh, younger people who are turning 18 at this point. So you have a whole bunch of younger people who get into all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, economic activities and economic ventures. And this coupled with the fact that at this point, the influences of, uh, you know, the Western music begins to come in, you know, the channel laws and all these other productions. And so, Hustle becomes 
your way of trying to earn a living without you know being strictly embedded into uh, you know what you'd call the corporate ladder or the corporate journey as we understand it or the civil service structure so being out there in the streets trying to use your smarts and your skills to be able to get an income was or is what uh, became the you know the hustler and by and large also this can be tied to what you call the ridiculous generation who at some point you know uh, the kids of the 90s who bear the full brand of the structural adjustment programs as it started in the 80s so in many ways you have a confluence of things the the, the political the colonial political economy becomes exhausted uh, a lot of uh, kids are still turning 18 becoming eligible to work and cannot be absorbed either by the you know the official formal sector as we call it neither by the government or the civil service or the public service the wider public service as we know it and so in the process of trying to create economic meaning for themselves in this colonial economy in this exhausted colonial economy and still within urban spaces then you have what you call the rise or what we can call the rise of you know the hustler generation or the hustler cluster and this uh, also speaks into a wider um, class conversation because one of the things that happens in the 90s is you you know with with the structural adjustment programs happening a lot of um, these younger people and you know they watch their parents lose their economic mobility you know their social mobility in that space and so it almost becomes the initial uh, sort of expansion of the, the and in inadvertently the expansion of the economic space away from both the government and the formal sector as we've known them for decades yeah. right hey, thanks i think that, that that really ties into particularly when you mentioned the ridiculous generation which is actually you know the the deputy president is part of our generation you know where a generation that has to do their, their 30 year careers was been very hasn't been the professional life climbing the ladder kind of thing you are in and out of jobs and you're doing side hustles that kind of thing but, but, but my next question would be then in 2020 why, why is the narrative resonating with with kenyans in, in particular i mean the younger generations the millennial generation and uh what what, what people may call the gen, the gen z's why, why, why is this why, why is there such a resonance uh with this narrative with, with this the younger generation There are a number of ways to look at that. One of them is um, the fact that the average Kenyan is what I think 19 years old. The same average Kenyan um, uh, in the, in the wider scheme of our economic or rather educational mobility, about 50% of those who graduate from primary school do not advance to secondary school. That has happened for so many years along the way, despite the uh, what you'd call the initiative to try and have a full you know enrollment across board. So you leave 50% of your class back. You you get to form four. Um, only about three percent qualified to go into the university. So you have this what you'd call the tyranny of the three percent. Mm-hmm. What happened to the other 97%? Most of them are still young. Their education ends at around 15, 16, 17 years of age, and then they have two years at home or a year or two at home, and then they start working. And so you have a young population that. you know uh, as in a country where the average income is about 13000 shillings a month mm-hmm. where 900000 young people um turn 18 every year and are eligible to work and a fair share of whom are looking for work i mean joe you look at our demographic structure and one of the things you realize very quickly is that you have a country of about 50 million about 28 million of these are eligible to work 
only about 15 million are working. So you have about 13 million people out there who are not economically active. Now, you can disaggregate that in whichever way you can say right. a certain number have retired. A certain number um, are in the student population and are not necessarily looking for work. A certain number, say, are subsisting, you know, are not seeking any particular economic um, engagement outside of, uh, you know, the home or, and their farms. So they're a bit agrarian in their model of sustenance. You know, you, you can continue to disaggregate that, but even at the end, you're still left with a significant cluster of young, you'd say frustrated people who are looking for work, who are trying to earn an economic living for themselves in conditions that are pretty tough in a country where um, our public social services don't work. So a lot of these things are privatized and there's a lot of inefficiency and high charges in there. Right. So this is the cluster that looks at the hustler narrative and realizes this really is about me. This is the one moment I'm getting a voice. And there's an interesting way of looking at it, uh, Joe. And that is uh, the fact that class struggle, this hustler narrative does not just resonate with this huge uh, number of young people. What happens is these young people have been having this, uh, this conversation uh, for, for quite a while, but then it, 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 I mean, it had a social grounding in itself, in the music they listened to, in the street use of the word, uh, the narrative hustler. Um, it had economic sense in terms of how they worked in the informal economy, the street vendors, the food vendors, the Mkopoteni guys. The proverbial you know, the side hustle. People. <laughs> yeah, the proverbial, what you would call um, the side hustle, you know. <laughs> so the hustler narrative already had a social currency and a social traction. It had an economic traction already in the streets. It had an intellectual traction considering about two years ago, early in 2018, we did what uh, you'd call the millennial series right here, the elephant. And it is one of those um, very consequential editions that uh, was at the elephant. And you know, it was simply the millennial generation saying, hey, look, stop trying to throw this stereotype at us. We are already adults. We can understand our situation and we can articulate it and we can own you know, our identity and our narratives. And we actually in a space where we are able to, you know, create a generational solidarity mm. thanks to social media. And so we own that conversation. So the hustler narrative, what is happening right now and what is, you know, sort of making it look like it's a whole new thing is the fact that uh, the politicians are now giving it political language. Mm. Otherwise, every other aspect, the economic language has already been given. The social language for hustler narrative has already been given. The intellectual one, and even the generational one, the generational one had already been done. So what we are only seeing to this end is now the political, uh, you know, narrative, the political terminology is coming into, you know, giving the, the, the hustler narrative, so to speak, uh, a political language and a certain political legitimacy. Otherwise, there's nothing new about right. this hustler movement and hustler narrative. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think that this, this, this brings me to... A uh, different conversation then. I mean, if you're saying that the, the ground was already laid, was already was already fertile. Uh, so uh, the vice president and his and his political faction have just uh, take, grabbed this uh, fat, fertile ground and ran with it. And it presents a question then on Kenya's economic blueprint, which I, which I, as you said, said, the political economy of Kenya. So, so my question would be then, if uh, what, what what is it about Kenya's economic blueprint? Uh, that lays that lends itself to creating these conditions of of the hustler and the hustler narrative etc 
what's that, what does that journey look like for, to, to get here? The journey getting here is, you know, you, you have a political economy that, you know, basically was supposed to raise a black aristocracy to take over from the white aristocracy somewhere around um, in 1963, basically. Mm. Because from 1885, what you've had is a white aristocracy ruling the country with a few chiefs and colonial and all, all these hangers-on and traitors. But then they figure out they have to leave. So if they're going to leave, they raise a black aristocracy and then they tell us you're giving you independence. But what are they actually doing is they're simply changing the colors of the colonial chiefs, you know, mm. from white to black. Mm. You know, sort of, you take, you, you, you take uh, colonialism and the colonial racism from an in-your-face kind of colonial racism into some kind of, uh, you know, into the structure. So it, 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 it stops being blatant, it becomes systemic, you know, right. uh, such that somebody needs to look a little bit harder to be able to, to see that this colonial racism never really ended. It's just colonialism getting shrewd or smarter, depending on how you look at it. And so because of that, this system has always been built around exclusion. We never went to school to be get employable, to understand the society, or to transform it in any fundamental way. Right. You went to school so that you could be given certain certifications, which become a social and intellectual signal that you had been prepared well enough to fit into the colonial economy that had mm. been left post-1963. Right. You know. But then, along the way, what happens is that system can only accommodate so many people. I mean, a lot of these chiefs already in and of themselves are 34, 36, 40 wives, a whole bunch of hundreds of kids out there. Right. So within two generations, you've already exhausted the number of slots you can tokenize. They, they, you know, these, if I could call them modern day home guards, you know. And then, the, the chiefs and their children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the chiefs and their children. Now, the problem is, even the children of the peasants are also going to school. And Absolutely. That is one of the biggest uh, mistakes, uh, quote-unquote mistakes Kibaki made, is that right. he allowed the sons of the peasants to go to university. And mm. so they get there, they can see these opportunities, and so there's a transformation that happens to them. They realize, you know, education creates a certain level of expectation and entitlement. You know, you think, I've got these skills, I deserve a certain level of work. You know, I deserve a certain level of economic and professional engagement. It's the same thing that happens to black soldiers who go to fight in India for, for the queen. You know, we, and then they come back, they realize also these colonialists can bleed, they can run, they're scared of bullets like everybody else. They're not the gods they presented themselves to be. Mm -hmm. So that kind, of, that kind of racial transformation also happens locally, but now it happens in terms of social transformation. Right. But then the system can't absorb these people. So the rise of what you'd call the, the, the informal sector or what you call the hustle economy, both socially and economically, is almost what you'd say a rebellion against the, the constraining realities of the political uh, mm. economy that was inherited from the, mm. uh, you know, from the Wazungus. Now, Kibaki wasn't it. You know, he, he opens up this, uh, you know, in a good way, he, you know, he opens up this space where, you know, you have module two generations. Of course, there's a lot to be said about the quality of education that was provided, but generally by numbers, uh, the 20 to 45, 48 generation is the most educated class in the country right now. And mm. a lot of these come from all classes. And then you add in the power of social media where in times past, if you fell out at, let's say, um, class eight, 
you are supposed to, you know, become socially invisible, disappear, you know, go right. become a farmhand somewhere, you know, don't, don't show up in, you know, these meaningful conversations. If you faded out at, uh, you know, form four, we could tokenize you a bit, but also don't raise, you know, don't try raise your profile. But right now you are able to keep tabs on, you know, each other. You have primary school friends, you have high school friends. You, we, basically, we, uh, social media and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the expansion of higher education in Kenya expanded the social, um, the social and intellectual class in this country in a way that cut across class regions right. and in a way that ensured that people who were supposed to fade out and become socially invisible suddenly became visible and demanding better than you know what they've seen before and that of course is a huge huge challenge for the political economy as it was because it's never wanted to reform anyway yeah mm-hmm. okay i mean which brings me to i think one of my last questions is that now we are here we're in 2020 uh, months less than two years to the elections uh the narrative is 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 here with us but i think importantly is the question which is even moving beyond I think the, the current you know, political stalemate is how then do we, how then do we fix our, 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 Kenya, our, our political economy, and particularly what kind of economic blueprint uh, do we need to, to, to make more hustlers, <laughs> to make more hustlers, less hustlers? What, what do we need to do about that? Well, there are a number of ways of uh, looking at that. Um, mm. One of the ways to go about it is uh, here's how it would, would, would look at it generally. Um, mm-hmm. Kibaki's job was to raise a generation of graduates, all through from some people in the 90s who had never gotten a university education who were able to get it, and college education who were able to get that. Absolutely. And then there's a whole younger generation also who come of age when he's the president and get into the system and they get all this education. But then that also moves, uh, you know, further ahead and you know a lot of these kids were not able to graduate soon enough to take advantage of the economic spoils that um, Kibaki created you know or rather the Kibakinomics created uh, you know the expansion in the, the motorcycle industry the ICT sector uh, the banking system the telecommunication systems you know there are all these industries that expanded then higher education and so, but Kibaki was only in power for 10 years. So by the time a lot of them are graduating, he's on the tail end of his regime. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there's the 2007 post-election violence, which affected um, how uh, the economy functioned after that. You remember, it moves from 7.1% growth to 1.7, actually a complete reversal, you know. And so what happens is whoever was to take over from President Kibaki in 2013, Mm. Their one primary job was to create economic opportunity for an entire generation that suddenly had been given education and exposure and raised expectations and who had, for a moment in the history of this country, realized that this thing can actually work. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so what you have here is you come into 2013, one of the easiest ways to go about this was, and it's something part of, you know, the realizations in 2007, which was the fact that we need to decentralize this country. We need to push um, both economic, social, and cultural fortunes away from the center. Mm-hmm. And this political. idea of the winner takes all, yeah, you know, everything is concentrated in one city. You know, you have 15, 20% of your GDP in one economy, in one county, 
and this county is not even very functional. Um, going by the fact that you know almost 60% of its three million plus residents live in informal settlement, mm -hmm. there was a need, and there's still a need to push this outwards. Once the political economy, in, in, you know, inherited from the, the, the white settler colonialists became exhausted, and this was as far back in the 90s, you could only create so many stopgap measures along the way before you made a major reform to it. Mm -hmm. The major reform here that, you know, would engender the kind of economic blueprint that, you know, you've highlighted would have been to open up northern Kenya, you know. And opening up northern Kenya, which would have meant basically move the economy away from the, the lunatic express. Along mm. the way, we've always built this kind of an economy that is centered 100 kilometers on both sides of the, the old uh, line from. Yeah. Mm. We, need, we needed to move the economy away from that because no um, economic blueprint is large enough Mm. to socially transform and economically transform an entire generation Absolutely. without taking into account certain existential realities and existential opportunities. And mm. one of them was simply decentralize everything. Devolution did part of that job. You know, it pushed some of the resources to the ground and pushed some of this focus to some of these, uh, you know, counties. Of course, it's been a mixed bag of legacy in the first two terms, but still it did a bit of work. The other one, of course, was... Uh, uh, moving, opening up, fundamentally opening up North and Kenya, you know, and Lapset was one of those programs that, you know, could have done that very well, you know, a complete overhaul of North and Kenya, open up the roads, build the schools, build the dams. We have about uh, three major aquifers in the North who could supply a lot of water to take care of a lot of these things. It will have helped solve the land question, you know, away from the chlorophyll zone, you know. It will have opened up the economy in such a way that it will have created opportunities for a huge segment of the population. But also, it's not just an economic blueprint. It will have forced us to confront certain social, ethnic, and cultural um, stereotypes and realities. If you're going north, then you'll have to uh, start having conversations about, the, let's say, the, the identity of the, you know, the Somali communities and how... You know, some of these things have been treated. It will bring up conversations around things like Wagala, you know, which is... Northern Frontier you know, District. One, and, mm. Yeah, the Northern Frontier District, you know, the Shifter Wars and everything Precisely. that happened there. The identity of, you know, some of the minority tribes in the North, you know, the Munyoyeas and the Gems, who, you know, we call them in our constitution, the others. Mm. You know, we'll have to, to discuss that othering of, of these uh, communities once we... We, we have to build a highway through their neighborhoods. You know, you can no longer mm. other them because one of the principles of othering them has always been the neglect of the Northern Frontier District. You never had to address them. So it will have caused or it will have brought about certain positive development, not just economically in terms of you know, infrastructural expansion. It will have also brought conversations around identity, you know, both ethnic, you know, ethnic communal identities, but also individual identities. And the space of you know, a whole lot of other um, resource issues and historical issues in the North, which so far we've been able to simply gloss over or ignore altogether. So that would have been one of the fundamental aspects to go about it. Mm. Thanks. That's, that's really good. So my last question, I mean, Suna, I mean, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, fortunately to some people, unfortunately, that uh, this conversation is within... Uh, is within the what we call the Tangatanga -tanga function, Deputy President Ruto, and there and there are those who there are those who feel uh, it might it, it's just another political rhetoric to gain power. 
but either way, you know, either way, it's not my concern here. But how then, if this is a very important conversation, how then do we move it away from, uh, uh, not to President Ruto, but how do we move it from the, uh, just the 2022 elections to it, to it being a mainstay in Kenya's public sphere, such that it would, we're able to shape uh, public policy, social policy, uh, economic policy, uh, but also even just to create a, a more holistic society where that the people who have been left behind it becomes a mainstay within our, politi our politics. How do we how do we move? What are the steps we need to take as a society? I mean, there are a number of ways we could go about that. And also, just 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 before addressing that, also the you know uh, going north would have also um, connected us to certain aspects of you know uh, northern frontier, that southern uh, Ethiopia, the Juba land in Somalia. Um, on the other side, we have South Sudan. You know still in the early stages of economic development. We have a whole, you know, uh, swath of land and, and then communities in northern uh, Uganda. And so you have all these communities around there whose that kind of an expansion or a decentralization of Kenyan, not just economics, but a Kenyan reality right. would have really, uh, you know, accounted for a lot and even improved some of our diplomatic and uh, cross-border um, engagements. So how do we, coming to this question, how do we then begin to move this conversation away from a few political precisely. Uh, you know, characters and you know, within two years? Here is how I'll say it. Number one, the hustler narrative and the hustler movement is about a class struggle, which has always been inevitable in this country. You know? mm -hmm. Whether or not a few political characters um, try to hijack it or have you know, uh, taken over in one shape, form or another, the class struggle didn't start with them, and it will not end with them. I mean, when you, when, when you look at the wider conversation about uh, movements, the, the, there's a psychology of movements. You know, right. there's, of course, the politics of movements, which is what they have. There's the sociology of movements built around uh, class struggle, you know, the poor. You have the marginalized in there. You have young people who feel uh, we are running a gerontocracy, which is basically... You know, a certain age clusters will only get to monopolize uh, resources and state functions. So right. you have very many facets to uh, what you would call, uh, you know, our national, uh, this national class struggle that is going on that will not be limited, neither will it end with um, the few, uh, you know, uh, politicians who are trying to hijack it for 2022. What I can tell you for a fact is that the class narrative, the Haslan narrative has been here. It will outlive them beyond 2022. And even between now and 2022, it will take on many functions and many models of existence beyond the two, uh, the, the politicians who are trying it. So this is an organic ground up, um, you could call it a political, social, cultural, and even economic insurgency that has a life of its own. Mm. And much as they might, you know, hijack not entirely, but aspects of it for their own political expediency. Right. I would say for those who are in many ways opposed um, to its existence, they mm. are misunderstanding the nature and character of this hustler narrative. It's mm. not going away anytime soon. This country was always going to have a, you know, a class struggle. It's always been here. It's simply coalescing around in a very unique way at this point in time. It could have happened in the 2022 itself. It could have happened in, the, in 2032. 
It could have happened in 2050. It could have happened even 40, 50 years from now. But either way, a class struggle was always going to be inevitable. Given the level of uh, corruption, the, the level of creativity among our elites, their the desire to centralize everything in a country of 50 million people and 582,000 square kilometers of land. Right. You know, there was every indicator, uh, historical, yeah, indicator, historical indicator, political indicator, economic indicator, and vestiges of the colonial history that we have that we have not resolved that mm -hmm. were creating the ground for a class struggle in this country. And so in many ways, this was near inevitable, if not outrightly inevitable. And so in that sense, then, you can say that it will be hijacked in places here and there, but then its legacy has a minimum of 10 years in this country. Given okay. that also, because of the age cluster of this country at 19 years, and because of uh, the fact that the younger people tend to be poorer in this country than their fathers and their grandfathers, so it has a generational dynamic which gives it a staying power. It has a class dynamic which the elites have refused to fix. So this is going to be around for a while. Give it 10, 15 years. That's my modest estimation. On that, on that very, very high note, thank you, Darius, for, for, for indulging me, indulging the, the elephant. Allow me perhaps in the future, as you said, in the next coming months, even as we get to 2022, to invite you more as we, as we as you said, since some movement to keep on unpacking its various facets. Uh, so on that note, thanks. Pleasure. Pleasure. No problem. So on that note, thanks, thanks, thanks for thanks for keep, for having time with us here, the elephant. Uh, Sante sana.